Hello, and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with my iconic special guest, Susan Stryker. She is a professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Arizona and the co-editor of Transgender Studies Quarterly. She has written numerous books, including the award-winning Transgender History, and she's directed, produced, and appeared in multiple films, including the 2020 documentary Disclosure. She's won a Community Vanguard Award from the Transgender Law Center, along with numerous other awards for her activism and her achievements in queer and trans scholarship. And all of that, quite frankly, is just scratching the surface. Dr. Stryker, welcome to Joe's Boys. How are you? Ah, just great, Peyton. Thank you so much yeah. for having me here. One quick thing. I am yes. no, no longer at the University of Arizona. I oh. retired in 2019. Right. Back in the before times, before <laughs> COVID changed our lives. And I am currently, it's like I'm at that time of life where I don't have to have a 24-7, 365 paycheck job. So mm-hmm. I have moved into doing more project-based work. And I'm currently on a fellowship trying to complete a book manuscript at the Stanford Humanities Center at Stanford University. Okay. Well, I apologize for getting that part of your biography wrong. Would you like me to just read it again? Or No, that's okay. totally fine. No apology necessary. It's not your job to like keep <laughs> up with every single thing that I've done. And just like, thanks no. for having your show. No, of course. I mean, and before we get going, I mean, can we get any hints on what the book manuscript is? That's very exciting. It is a trade book oh. called Changing Gender, written for a mass audience. And because I'm a historian by training, of course, it's got history in it. But, you know, it, like, it looks at how the concept of gender itself has changed over time. Gender, what does it do? Where did that word even come from? You know, how come people get their knickers in such a twist about it these days? We can't even agree on what the word means. Yeah. So I use that idea of talking about the changing history of the concept of gender itself to talk about how gender has changed in a socio-historical way and to kind of wind up with an argument or a manifesto or a plea for how gender needs to continue changing in our present day. Well, I love that. I mean, I it sounds highly relevant. I mean, maybe there's not really a moment where it ever hasn't been highly relevant, but I think it's certainly something that needs to be heard right now in 2023, because I think we're kind of in the middle of an unprecedented attack on especially young people who choose to transition. And so I'm I'm certainly very excited to hear more about what you have to say and the history of the concept of changing gender, which, as you know, it's highly pertinent to our whole mission here at Joe's Boys, is looking into the history of transness, the way that, quote unquote, trans identity has manifested itself even as early as the 19th century earlier. <laughs> so I'm very excited. I will be first in line. I'm no no pressure. I know writing a book is hard. <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm really trying to finish it up this calendar year. And just to give you like a tiny little smidgen of a preview <laughs> on that. I mean, just one of the things that I have learned is that both let's just call it on the left and on the right, there is this story about John Money invented gender in the 1950s. And John Money was a researcher at Johns Hopkins University who studied intersex youth. 
and is popularly credited with developing the concept of gender as something distinct from sex to say sex is biology and gender is your psychological sense of self as well as your social categorization as a man or a woman and what intersex shows us is that these things don't necessarily have to line up and we should have a different vocabulary for talking about these things that usually get all lumped together but sometimes you need to disambiguate and I said on both the left and the right, there is this story. It's like John Money's the guy who invented that idea and that it's like, oh, gender used to just be a grammatical term, how it referred to the classification of nouns and pronouns. And then it was applied to people by John Money. So you've got right wing people saying John Money, skeezy perv, who was a pedophile at Johns Hopkins University. He made this thing up and it's all about abusing children. And then you've got people on the left, like from a feminist left, you know, like, you know, gender, it's the concept that we use to talk about the biology is not destiny thing. There's a difference between being biologically female and a social woman. And the social part is completely political and changeable and revisable. But both sides of this story, you know, like all roads lead to John Money. And the thing that I am learning in my research is that it, the technical term is that's just BS. There is a history of gender meaning gender, the way it's attributed to money, well before John Money. And in fact, I can take that conversation back into the mid 19th century. I have found a discussion of gender as using that word gender yeah. about what we now mean by gender in the 1840s and 50s, which brings us right back to Little Women. Let's go. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, even before Little Women a few years, because this is an 1868 novel. So already we were forming an understanding of male natures and female bodies and the difference between embodiment and the soul and the spirit. And some of that is very present in this chapter. What we're I'll ask you to recap in a second, but first, what's your relationship to Little Women? Oh, very tangential, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, of course, I know the stories, and I've seen several versions of the movie, but I've or se several movie versions of the book, but the novel itself, I've only kind of skimmed partly because I had a trans childhood where I was not inculcated in certain books that were directed to girls. So there was nothing that was sort of pushing that at me. So I learned it later in life. My PhD is actually in U.S. history, and I sort of specialized in the antebellum period. And so it was oh. actually when I was in college. It was like, oh, here's this novel, Little Women. <laughs> so I, I read it. I read it quickly. I have an appreciation for it. But it was not, I am not a Little Women head sort of person. So no, of course. Yeah. And obviously, like I said, before we started recording, I want all kinds of perspectives here. And it's not lost on me that people who are, quote unquote, have trans childhoods or are cis men, just aren't exposed to this book or given opportunities to read this book to the extent that cis girls are. So it's important to me to just there's a wide variety of ways that a person can come to this book. And I like to bring people in whether they came to it later or are coming to it for the first time now. <laughs> and this is a very fun little chapter here. With, it's very Amy-centric. So before we get into Amy, I should probably ask you, which March sister are you? And again, for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. I'm going to have to say it would be Joe. You know, okay. You know, identifying very strongly with the sense of, well, the bookishness, the intellectualism, yeah. 
the gender unconventionality, like the sense of, you know, you just kind of need to figure out your own way in life without paying undue attention to the social niceties and conventions and, you know, that. So, yeah, I think Joe is an admirable character. She absolutely is. And everything you just said about her pressing up against gendered conventions and trying to make her own way in the world, she kind of haunts this chapter from the margins. We get So this chapter, which I'll ask you to summarize in a second, is it's letters home from Amy from Europe. And she's constantly kind of mentioning, she's like, oh, Joe would love this. If Joe were here, this is what Joe would be doing. And it's always some gender fuckery. <laughs> so. Well, and then there's that, not to give away the plot point, I haven't summarized it yet, but when Amy is writing home about, Fred pops the question, I'm going to say yes. I mean, I like him well enough and he's rich. It's like somebody's got to marry up because, and then she says, one of us must marry well. Meg didn't. Joe won't, Beth can't. And I was like, Joe won't. Interesting. It's And that, I mean, we will get to that. <laughs> That's fascinating. Joe won't. Beth can't is equally, in- oh, it's also very interesting to me why Beth simply can't marry. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But I mean, I should ask you, Susan, before Fred pops the question, like what happens in this chapter? Well, as you mentioned, it's very Amy-centric. She is kind of doing the grand tour with Flo and aunt and uncle. And, you know, we hear the reports from onboard ship of like, oh, we sailed past Halifax and I loved the Irish coast and Liverpool was dirty and smelly and (laughs) London was fabulous. And we hear a lot about London and then we hear a lot about Paris and we hear a little bit about the Rhineland and the Baden-Baden and Goethe and Schiller and et cetera, et cetera. And so Fred keeps popping up, being quite the gentleman, being quite interested in Amy. And Amy eventually writes home to her mother and says, like, like, I think he's into me. And I'm just saying, I don't know if I love him, but I like him. I think we'd be good companions. I kind of get the sense he's going to pop me the question. And I'm just letting you know, I think I'm probably going to say yes. So give me your advice. Tell me if you think I'm stupid. But (laughs) I think that's what I'm going to do, you know, for all the reasons that she outlines, you know, and she's very clear about her. Just like I I like the way the English do luxury. It's not ostentation. Yes. <laughs> like it's, it's like a genteel kind of privilege. I think I would. I think it would look good on me. <laughs> yeah. And she talks about how she would not so much a, a, a title. I think that she's very interested mm-hmm. in a kind of high bourgeois, well-funded, comfortable life. And yeah. she makes no bones about it. And there's actually something quite refreshing about that. I think. No. Yeah, I didn't really remember until I reread it for our preparation, just how frank she is about like, you know what, I, it's not a love match, but I but think it's a we'd like be able, it's no. a like match, we'd be good companions, and this is kind of my inventory of his house, and this is how I feel when people have titles with nothing behind them, so she's already getting into this British class snobbery very quickly. It's a fascinating chapter, because it's all, which is a rare thing in this book, it's all just pure Amy voice which having read May Alcott's own letters, it's remarkable how much Alcott gets to the heart of the real life Amy's. It's complete moving through social scenes like a whirligig and soaking up everything and have, and being delighted. There's also a lot of, in addition to kind of sightseeing and shopping, she constantly is saying, I had to stop to sketch this. It was beautiful. I had to, I was constantly making art. So 
I just was recording with my friend Hal Shreve, the chapter on artistic attempts, where we love Hal, shout out to Hal, where Amy was trying to make all this art and failing and every new attempt at a new medium kind of was met with disaster. But here she's really in her element sketching and enjoying herself and being an artist. And I was touched recently, I'm, I'm working my way through Alcott's letters, and I was touched to find a letter that she wrote to the editor of a local paper after the real life May passed away saying, you got your facts wrong. I hope you'll print these corrections. And it's just a page and a half of all of May's artistic accomplishments and what a brilliant painter she was and how she was so admired in the salons and she distinguished herself. So there's a real appreciation here that comes through for the first time of, oh, May slash Amy is an artist and this is what she's doing with her life. There's ambition here equal to but different from Joe's ambition to be a writer which comes through very clearly in this chapter. So it's a fun one. It's really, it's breezy and fun and sexy. And I'm glad we're talking about it. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I think with all that said about the beautiful, wonderful Amy, I mean, I think we have to get right to those two words. Joe won't. What do we make of that? Why won't Joe? That's a really interesting question. Could it be because to be a wife, which then presumably means to be a mother, and then means to have a household to run for your husband, maybe that just gets in the way of being a writer. And maybe she just really was like, I'm going to prioritize this thing that I want for myself. Whether or not she might be into some guy somewhere, somehow, sometime. Or maybe, maybe Joe just isn't into guys, or maybe it's, you know, both of the above, you know, but the, the takeaway is that she, she prioritizes a life of the mind and creative expression and self-fulfillment over the socially conventional expectations of, of womanhood. She's just going, nah, not, yeah. nah, not for me. Yeah. Well, and What's interesting is at this point in the novel, Lori has already said, Joe, you're going to go next. Mark my words. And Joe has said, absolutely not. And what's interesting is that the family kind of seems to take her word for it. Like, I was surprised that Amy doesn't have an aside here, but we all know that Joe is going to marry Lori eventually. That's not the sentiment. Why do you think that is? Why don't you think the family assumes that she and Lori are a sure thing? I just think people know people. Parents know their kids, siblings know their siblings, and you just get a sense of what somebody's, do I want to say, core sense of self is. But you know, you know people's character, how they're wrong, what their priorities are. And, you know, you could just say, I just don't think Joe has it in her to put a man above things that she wants to do. It's like, yeah, I will say one of the things that's refreshing in the book is that because it is in the Victorian yes. period, it's like it can be an assumption from the outside that, you know, everybody's got their head stuck up the butt and that they're hidebound and rigid and putting their hands over their ears to not hear anything mm -hmm. about anything untoward. It's like sexuality, gender, la, 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 not listening, but you know, in real life, there's always been nuance around these things. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't have the contemporary vocabulary for it, people know what they know. Some people are into some things and other people and some they're not into other things. It's like they don't yeah. know when you know how the people around you do and don't fit with mm -hmm. the social structure that has been yeah. handed that none of us chose. And people are always negotiating their way through that. I mean, so much of, you know, women's literature in the 19th century is about women as people moving <laughs> into a public sphere and finding mm -hmm. 
different ways for being themselves at a time mm-hmm. when not only was there enforcement of certain kinds of restrictions, but also new possibilities opening up for living in a different yeah. way. And so it's fascinating to me to read 19th century literature. <laughs> and I'm, I love that historical mm-hmm. period. It is so strikingly modern. Modern history in the sense of post-1492, that's the world that we still live in, very different mm-hmm. from medieval world. But by the time you get into the early 19th century, into the 1830s and 40s, that world that is coming into being then, it is just so shockingly familiar. It's like a steampunk version of the present. I mean, the conversations people are having, the fact that I look at the that period of U.S. history is that there's a transportation revolution going on. I mean, like with the yeah. canals and the railroads and new high-speed toll roads for yeah. cross-country travel. There's a communications revolution. There's telegraphs. You know, you can get a message from one side of the country to the other and, you know, like that. Yeah. There's a revolution in print media with the newspapers. There is a move towards a more expansive kind of democracy, even though it was still democracy for white men. There was a huge populist movement. There's innovations in science and technology. Photography is coming on board around this time. And so that all of the, call it the socio-technical world that we live in now, the creation of mass media, these like social movements around body reform, dress reform movements and diet reform movements. It's like you read the 19th century, people talking about vegetarianism and doing yep. their hero and <laughs> they're questioning whether or not women should wear dresses all the time. It's just like mm-hmm. all of these conversations that are going on seem to me so, like I said, very profoundly contemporary. If you read Except in the 18th century, you're going like, what are they talking about? It's <laughs> like, why do they care? But mm-hmm. a lot of the 19th century stuff, you're like, ah, I'm totally right there with yep. you. And Joe's sense of having an ill fit to womanhood is something that seems very familiar. And that question of, well, what is to be done? Joe is figuring out a life path that might not be what the social expectation would be like how whatever that path might be it's like that problem is something that joe is wrestling with and she's finding a a a solution for herself that satisfies yeah and i mean you've just given me so much there are so many questions i want to ask you talked about the transportation revolution and i mean the fact that amy can do all this travel in one chapter alone. that That's remarkable. The fact that she can write a letter to her mother from across the ocean, be like, what do you think? Let me know. She does say, I wish I could see you for a good talk. But you know, that like they, the implication is like, they're going to be able to get letters back and forth to one another in timely enough fashion that Marmy can actually advise Amy on this situation. And then of course, we have this question of Joe won't marry, one of us must marry well, which speaks so much to the social conventions of the day, even as far as something that I've learned recently is that it was fairly common in large families for one child to just not marry so that they could take care of the aging parents, which isn't something that we would really considered. So when Joe says there has to be at least one old maid in every family, she kind of means that like there has to be 
one child whose responsibility is looking after the parents as they age. And in real life, that's certainly a responsibility that Alcott took very seriously was looking after her mother and her father. I mean, they died within days of one another, which goes to show you how enmeshed that relationship was. But yeah, I agree with you. It's This chapter especially is so modern. No one's going to see Napoleon when they go to Paris, which Amy does. Yeah, little nap. Yep, I've seen Napoleon. I've seen Little Nap. His son is hot. Not the um, family. It's like, he's <laughs> ugly. She's pretty. Yeah. He doesn't dress well, though. And that kid. Yeah. And she's like, I'm, I'm interested in the boy. That's, of, of course. <laughs> no, but it's there. there are things you could in this chapter that really could be written today about a person's experience of London or Paris or the Irish coast. It does strike me as very modern. And even this, what's not modern about it, (laughs) because, and this is a kind of a key difference here between Amy and Joe, as they follow, we're at the point in Little Women where their paths are really diverging quite hard. And when Amy considers marrying Fred, she has been traveling, she has been drawing, sketching up a storm, just enjoying her art. When she talks about what her life might look like when she marries Fred, that there's no mention at all of artwork or continuing to have a life in the arts. What do you think of that? Do you think that omission is significant? I will say when I reread the chapter in preparation (laughs) for talking with you today, that wasn't something that stuck out to me. It's like, oh, and I guess what my assumption was now that you asked me about it was that, of course, Amy would not have a career as a professional artist. She would not be like hosting some salon in Paris or exhibiting her works there. But, you know, I think there's also a tradition of the talented amateur. It would be considered a social grace for Fred's wife to be an accomplished sketch artist. Yeah. All of that belletristic finishing school. So I just assumed that she would probably continue with her avocational passions, but that they would not be, it would not be a job. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you say that because the May Alcott, kind of the real life counterpart, definitely did have a professional career in the arts, was showing her artwork, selling artwork. She was apparently a celebrated Turner copyist. Like that was, she was just aces at ships and oceans. That was her forte. And she, the Alcotts didn't have any money yet at this point when this was written. So I know that May Alcott's Parisian art career kind of came after this. It was this was almost predicting it. So it maybe says a lot about kind of Lou Alcott's view of May and what she was capable of. That May can go to Europe and sketch, but not take painting lessons and sell paintings and have her art displayed. Which is which I don't know. I, that that kind of says a lot about the way that Lou viewed May at this point, and also just the family's position and what was possible for them. But one last thing, I mean. This says a lot in and of itself. She's summarizing Germany and what German Germany has been like for her so far. She talks about some sightseeing she's done. She saw Goethe's house, some paintings. She says, I should have enjoyed it more if I had known the story better. I didn't like to ask as everyone knew it or pretended they did. I wish Joe would tell me all about it. I ought to have read more for I find it. I don't know anything and it mortifies me. So there is like a, ooh, I, I should I should know more. I should learn more. I should be more intellectual. Joe has something that I don't. So she says that, I find I don't know anything and it mortifies me. And then the next paragraph begins, now comes the serious part and she gets into Fred and the proposal. So that's serious and the intellectual stuff is not. 
which is a very Amy kind of hand waving of that. It's an interesting tension in the chapter here. I, I'm just wary to write off kind of Amy's ambitions because they are present, but they're bumping up against this drive for for marriage, not even marrying for love, but marrying for status. And well, marrying for status, but at some level also marrying for family to really mm-hmm. just think seriously about the political economy of marriage mm-hmm. and of you got the sisters and Joe won't, Beth can't. So falls to me. Fortunately, you know, I'm down. But there is this sense of, well, one of us has got to do it. So, you know, why not me? Yes. I could consent to be, you know, a lady with a fine country house and a yes. handsome husband who I like well enough. And yeah, I'm in. But it's not just, she's not thinking just what do I as a self-authoring subject want for myself? She's very much thinking in terms of relationality. Oh, yeah. Uh, familial obligation. There's loving regard for the other people in her family. She's not being a mercenary. She's not a gold digger. You know, she's saying like, you know what? I like to dress well. I want a comfortable house. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. You know, you want some money in your pocketbook and that's all right. But it's not, it's, there's, it's not selfish. It's not oh. a selfish desire for physical comfort and yeah. ease. No, and she she says that right up top. She says, I know mother will shake her head and the girls say, oh, the mercenary little wretch. She's trying to say, I'm not a gold digger. I'm not a gold digger. (laughs) She's making trying to make that very clear. It's interesting. What Alcott is doing really effectively here is setting up the contrast in all of them. Meg is already married for love. Joe has no ambitions in that direction at this point, it seems. Joe won't is the phrasing we get. And then Meg can't, which, sorry, Beth can't, which I do want to get into. But Amy well, at this point, yeah, sorry. Before we do that, just a couple of stray observations on yeah. Amy abroad. Amy abroad, uh, yes. Looking at the chapter and going like, where are the queer-ish, trans-ish moments yes, yes. here? What am I paying attention to? I mean, we've talked about some of it already, but there were a couple of things that stuck out to me. And one of them was when Amy is talking about going to the Kensington Museum. She mentions Hogarth. And Hogarth, he represented the seamy side of 18th century London, you know, the rakes. more. And he, he did cartoons and sketches of libertines and dandies and fops, you know, executed criminals. There's something very tabloid about Hogarth. And there's a lot of queer content in what Hogarth is depicting. And so that Amy mentions she's looking at Hogarth, it's kind of like, she she knows what (laughs) she's seeing, right? Yep. There's a lot of queer content in Hogarth. That's all I'm saying. And then the one of the other moments when she's in Hyde Park, and as people watching in Hyde mm-hmm. Park, she's mentioning the dowagers and their with their mm-hmm. servants and people with their dogs and you know, whatever. And then she says the dandies in queer English hats and lavender kids lounging yep. about. Yes, dandies, queer, and lavender all in one sentence certainly stuck out to me. Loun- lounging, that. lounging in the lounging. park. Lounging, dandies, <laughs> queer English hats, and lavender kids lounging about in the yeah. park. Now, you know, obviously, better than I At what point did dandies, was that ever like an affirmatively queer term where they're non-queer dandies? Because Laurie has been described as a dandy in this book. Well, it's squishy, I think. It's a fuzzy boundary between what's considered 
acceptable male fashion and what's not. It can shade over into effeminacy. So is that just fashion or is that ignoring something? So, so, I mean, dandy, I think, is 18th, 19th century metrosexual. Okay, okay. Uh, And one of the other things I thought about reading that passage was just like a little earlier in that 18th century, there was this whole style of masculine fashion called the macaroni. Yankee Doodle. Yankee Doodle. Well, oh, my God. Gets to that. So macaroni. Yeah. It comes from the Italian. Yes. Meaning a simple peasant dish of pasta tossed with whatever the day's leftovers are. Just pasta salad, macaroni. But it means something mixed. And there's actually a literary term, a macaronic verse. A macaronic verse or text is something that mixes different languages, often to comic effect. So there was this style, second half, like later 18th century, certainly like by the 1770s, where English dandies or fops or just young men who had gone on the grand tour to France and Italy and Germany and whatnot, kind of like the same circuit that that we're seeing Amy make, that they had gone to Europe and they had come back with the stylistic affectations of the French and the Italians. And there's something not English meat and potatoes about all of this. And that the macaroni style was... It's like you look at the class position of macaronis, and I think they tend to be upwardly mobile people who are not of high birth. And that there's a way that the macaroni style is, it's almost like a parody. It's, okay, throwing, yeah. it's throwing shade at aristocratic high society fashion, yeah. but it's appropriating it, it's mixing it a little differently. Is it queer? <laughs> It was certainly perceived as gender bent at the time. Mm -hmm. Like these would be people who would wear high powdered periwigs and their silk breeches with (laughs) stockings with heeled shoes. And perhaps they might have their little handkerchief stuck in the sleeve of their jacket. Things that, that now you would think of as a caricature of Marie Antoinette style court fashion (laughs) back in the day. But that style was called the a macaroni style. And so where that comes from in the song Yankee Doodle, that was actually British soldiers singing about U.S. soldiers. I mean, not U.S. at the oh, time. okay. And armed, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's a very co- kind of a complicated and very queer song, actually, because what... Maybe this is a little too deep a dive. The song was actually written by a British military surgeon about the the French and Indian Wars, Great Wars for Mm -hmm. Empire in the 1760s, and that he was stationed in New York as part of British troops fighting against the French troops. And he was writing a song about the people that he considered to be the provincial country bumpkin yokels who were the Anglo settlers in that right. part of New York, the Yankees, and he was kind of making fun of them. It's like sophisticated yeah. Britisher making fun of the provincials. 
and was calling them Yankee doodles. Doodle was actually a slang word that kind of means putts or, right? And so for them to be called Yankee doodle dandies, sticking a feather in their hat and calling it macaroni, (laughs) the subtext there is that it was a sophisticated European person basically accusing the backwoods people of being so culturally inept that it's like they couldn't even do their drag right it's like they (laughs) sit together in their hat and called it macaroni yeah yeah it's like it's like girl that is not macaroni (laughs) right and so then in the revolutionary war (laughs) the british soldiers were singing that at the u.s soldiers as a taunt and the the continental soldiers would sing it back to them it was this settler colonial backwoods populist masculinity mm-hmm. embracing a kind of genderqueer figure as a way of saying like you know in, in your face <laughs> kind of has the same affect to it i think as trump supporters who would go see a 70s hair band at a concert like at a football stadium concert sure. like going to twisted sister in <laughs> cleveland or something yeah there's this way that the gender nonconformity in the figure becomes a kind of defiance. Yeah, yeah. So we're getting away from li- little women here, but it's yeah. like the idea that there was not a really self-conscious sense of gender play in the 18th and 19th century in the U.S., that is just ignorance if you don't. And we're all ignorant about something. I know yeah, this yeah. stuff study it, right? But there's a misconception that in ye olden days that people didn't know nothing right. about gender queerness or diversity or <laughs> fluidities. It is all over the place. Oh, yeah. I'm literally on the edge of this seat here. <laughs> I'm so jealous of all your students, and I can't believe I'm getting this for free. I'm like, wow, this explanation, this unpacking of the origins of Yankee Doodle. I, the fact that we were able, you were able to pull that out of dandies and queer English hats and lavender kids and give us all that background. That was very cool. Thank you for that i just doing my job yes just doing your job i if we want to spend just one more second on fashion i think we know that alcott was really not someone who cared much to adorn herself or perform femininity certainly but you know it is it's interesting the way that she's able to still portray amy as really caring about fashion and shopping and even just the prospect my gloves will be sent to me in paris isn't that exciting oh my god gloves in paris shopping in paris it's that she's able to capture that and right outside of kind of her own perspective i think is really lovely like she can there's something about alcott as someone who we know that she never much liked girls. <laughs> she wrote Little Women to prove, she said, that she couldn't write a girl's book. And yet she's still a very close observer of girlhood and just the pleasure of new gowns and gallant creatures and true and English There's something very kind. There's yeah, something yeah. kind and loving. That's and it. the idea that we were all born, never asked. We right. didn't depict <laughs> the social order we were born into there's a lot of stuff that just gets put on you from the outside and i think we all consciously or unconsciously kind of make our decisions about what we can live with and what we can't and and people have different personalities and people are maybe thrilled or pleased with or accepting of some of the social conventions that get put on you maybe it just accords with your sense of who you are you know and that there's no harm or shame in that 
that. And then some people, it's like, mm, it doesn't line up in quite the same way. Yeah. And so I think both the character of Joe and the person of Lou Alcott mm-hmm. are definitely in the, okay, I better make my peace with this at some level. And I got to like a little something different at some level. It's like there's some work there. There's not an easy fit, but she doesn't put onto other people a sense of her own lack of fit or create a hierarchy of thinking like it's better to be like this than like that or you blame people who do something easily that would just be anathema to you she just she's you get a sense of the characters in the book as people who are like fully realized but also like totally accepting of the differences of the people around them and that ultimately it's it's loving. It's kind, it's accepting, and it's loving. And sometimes it's hard when people are different from what you might expect or want yes. from them. Yeah. But just that recognition that kind of ha- however you make your peace or you don't mm-hmm. with the world that got handed to you, there can be mm-hmm. compassion for the people who yeah. are engaged in the same struggle, even if they come up with different answers for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think it speaks to just the real bond of siblinghood in the Alcott family that Alcott was at this point able to portray kind of a potential future for May with so much love and care. With one important aspect missing, and this is what I hinted at earlier, I have to pull back the curtain now. So two manuscript chapters of Little Women have survived, just two. This is one of them. So the Concord Free Public Library has the original manuscript. And this is from my annotated edition here by Anne Boyd Rue. We have some notes on things that were cut out of our foreign correspondent, the way that it was revised. And you will be shocked to learn that in the original text, Amy never contemplates marrying Fred. That's just not part of it. Instead, I'll give you some specific examples, but basically... Amy rolls through Europe flirting with every single boy she meets. It's She has a crush on every boy. So starting with the beginning in the book, when, when she's on the ship, she says, don't laugh, Joe. Gentlemen really are very necessary aboard ship to hold on to or to wait upon one. And that's a bit flirty. But in the manuscript, she says, everyone was very kind to me, especially the gentlemen. Don't laugh, Joe. I didn't flirt. And one really does need gentlemen to hold on by or to wait upon one. So it was a bit more explicitly. She's like, I didn't flirt, but I mean, if the man wants to hold on to me, it's fine. There's- it's very useful to have an yeah. arm when one is upon the open sea yes. and the ship rocks to and fro. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's in the, I mean, some version of that is yes. in the chapter as it it's was. It's similar. She says, Joe, I didn't flirt. She's making that clear. But later on, there's mentions of when she does meet up with Fred in London. She says, my head is in such a whirl. I don't know what I'm saying. I had a gay time talking over past, present, and future fun. I'm going to a garden party. There's a real sense of social life here. When she gets to Switzerland, instead of Fred, it's another man named Captain Lennox who shows up in Switzerland and begins to court Amy. Fred doesn't appear again in the book. In this, in the original chapter, he's gone. Amy's onto another suitor, this Captain Lennox. When Amy goes to Germany, she's serenaded by some German boys. Also in Germany, they go to a casino. Amy's uncle won't let her gamble, but she's intrigued to see that women are gambling and that they're winning money as eagerly as the men do. So there's a there's sort of a more sense of sexual and gambling danger and 
gender norms kind of falling apart. She's like, women are gambling. That's scandalous. But she's intrigued. And then, again, instead of Fred or the German boys who've been serenading her or the man who sang her the, sh the song on the ship to flirt with her, she realizes that Captain Lennox is developing feelings for her. And she says, I never flirted. Truly, mother, in the first place, he's homely and small and poor, and I don't care for him. And she's upset that this insufficient suitor likes her. She says, I can't help it. A fool if people will like me. And, and Captain Lennox doesn't give it up. He's hanging on. He's really hoping to engage Amy and... She blows him off and feels bad and wonders if she's leaving him, leading him on. So it's a different take on the character. There's a more real sense of her sexuality and her kind of enjoying flirting and having different suitors and not liking a suitor and maybe wanting to refuse a suitor. So I wonder what you make of those divergences from the earlier draft to the final one and how you think Alcott might have arrived at the place she did. It's hard for me to speculate. I, mean, I can just say <laughs> intriguing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe, may, maybe on second thought, Lou Alcott just thought maybe that was a little out of character for, or not fully out of character, but maybe a little farther than she thought Amy would go. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I used to have a job writing scripts for Choose Your Own Adventure video games. Which is a very, it's very fun work. But in these games, generally, you'd give people three different love interests that they can kind of pursue over the course of the game at their leisure. And I got feedback from my supervisor once that was like, okay, all of these crushes are the same people. And I know that this is your type, but you have to understand that other people <laughs> want different things from potential partners. And I think maybe there was some feedback where like, Amy is like, oh, a marriage proposal from a man. God, who would want that? <laughs> And May was like, I would. <laughs> and it was yeah. kind of Lou having to be like, okay, May is not me. May would react to the situation differently. I believe that May would be dissatisfied by a proposal from a man she saw as below her or small mm -hmm. and homely and poor. I, yeah, I fully buy that. But I think it's ultimately less interesting and, and maybe less story forward than this very adequate rich man. And ooh, how do I feel about that? And I'm kind of taking a big step here from girlhood to womanhood and my mom's not here to supervise me. I, I don't know. I think we get enough flirty Amy. We get pictures enough of her enjoying social life. I would like the gambling scene in there though. I would like to see Amy being a little bit bad or thinking about being bad. There's just a slight mention of that in the published text. It's like, you know, we were in Baden and yeah. it was it uncle or Fred, who <laughs> lost a lot of... Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. But that it's... There wasn't an explicit mention of casino. It was just like, well, we went to the baths and I forget which one it was. Just lost a lot of money. Yeah. there's And there's no mention at all of women gambling. No, no mention no. of women gambling. No. You know, and I remember when I was looking at that, refreshing my memory, it was sort of, oh, lost some money at the baths. It's like, yeah, there, uh, well, I mean, it was a resort town. There must yeah. be casino there or something or you know poker games in a hotel room and but you know there de generally there was a sense of god oh, when you go to button button it's like what's what happens in button button stays <laughs> button button but what yeah it was not explicit at all yeah well so the i think the very last thing i want to touch on here is we hear when she's talking about how one of us must marry i want to make sure that i get the exact line here meg didn't joe won't Beth can't. So what do we make of Beth can't? We do earlier in this, Frank, who was, I believe, was ill, 
when they met at Camp Lawrence in the first book. He asks after Beth. He's sad to hear that Beth isn't doing well. So we know that Beth is struggling with her health. But it's interesting that the health struggle translates here to Beth can't. Beth can't yet. That changes the meaning. Yet changes the meaning. Well, I do think it has to do with questions about health. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I don't think it's... And I just took that as... Beth can't get married for healthcare reasons, might not be able to run a household or conceive and nurture and raise children. And so whether it's can't or can't yet, because you always hope that someone who's ill will recover their health. Right. But there's definitely this sense of, yeah, physically, like that's not going to be a thing. No. Yeah. And it's the yet isn't age related. It's not like Beth isn't old enough because Beth is older than Amy at this point. Right. It's very much a question about health. Even just including the yet at all is an interestingly hopeful hedge because we we are approaching the moment where Beth's health will take kind of the final turn for the worst. It's interesting that Amy is still being optimistic about it or thinking that this is even in the cards for Beth, who has never shown interest, any interest in boys, who is fearful of boys and of other people. And holding uh, out a hope for building life that Mm -hmm. Amy is imagining unfolding in a socially conventional pattern. Yeah. Yes. My beloved sister, Beth, who has health concerns, but, you Mm -hmm. know, she's frail, so Mm -hmm. I should marry. should take that one for the team. And hope springs (laughs) eternal. Beth can't marry yet. Not so yet. I should marry soon. Yes. And it's there's optimism there that is not present for Joe, even though Joe eventually does marry. I don't know if Alcott had decided that was going to happen by this point. <laughs> it's a real mystery. I was talking to Anna Todd, the author Anna Todd, for a recent episode. And in her Little Women adaptation, she writes, Beth is a lesbian, which struck me as an interesting interpretation of the character. And maybe one that's supported by the text. I don't know. What do you think? Can we see that for Beth? I could see that. And I think maybe the reason that it doesn't, I mean, because Joe is the more gender atypical character. It gets the easy tomboy reading of the proto-lesbian. Oh, yeah. But that Beth as the frail one, there could be an interference from a kind of ableist perspective. Of, yeah. You don't think of a character with a quote unquote disability or a health concern as being sexual in the same way. Right. Or, but that's what Amy's saying. Not yet. Right. But that we, I mean, I think the character of Amy doesn't think of Beth that way as Mm -hmm. proto-lesbian. She recognizes Joe as gender unconventional. Oh, yeah. But I think we as modern readers might, thinking of Beth as the or a lesbian character, yeah, maybe Mm -hmm. what gets in the way is that you're seeing the health issue as your primary filter and you're characterizing her that way and you're assuming well no, it doesn't kind of matter who like she wants to hook up with because you know she's not long for this life and so maybe her proto-lesbianism is masked by our ableist reading of her illness yeah i think that's a very good point i'd never quite thought about it in those terms but there's just the failure to read Beth as a romantic or sexual being is interesting. And what's also interesting, we're getting into the next chapter now, and I won't, I don't want to spoil anything, but in the next chapter, Joe makes a very, like, she is sure that Beth has romantic feelings for another, for a man. She makes that judgment. She's like, Beth must be in love with this man. 
that's what's happening here, which is very different from Beth can't yet. And it's interesting that it's Joe who's the one making those that assumption. But <laughs> Joe making an assumption about straightness is of all people is very it's very funny to me. Well, you know it when you see it, right? It's perhaps. I think this is something that I joke about with my friends a lot, but I think like Joe is so obviously and visibly and kind of archetypally queer that it can be harder to query the others, <laughs> you know, than they stand next to her. And we joke all the time about Amy going off to Europe and having meeting a hot girl and coming home and being like, guess what? I'm bi. And Joe being like, she stole my thing. Or like Beth bringing home a girlfriend out of nowhere. And Joe's like, no, no, that's me. <laughs> I'm the one. <laughs> and there might be a little bit of that happening here. But I mean, who can say? Well, Susan, I, I don't want to keep you here long. We're at the hour. Thank you so much for being here today. I have learned so much from you. That Yankee Doodle unpacking will stay with me. Where can people find you online? How can they support your work, buy your books, all that? Well, the new book should be out next year. So just keep an eye out for that changing gender website, susanstriker.net. It's pretty bare bones right now, but it is a point of contact. And I'm around. I do things. Find me on the interwebs. If you're interested in trans history, I do have that other book, Transgender History, that came out few years ago now it should really have a third revised edition not yes. just a second revised edition because stuff has happened since mm -hmm. 2017 unfortunately 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 so yeah anyway well yeah it was great to be on yes. the show it was really fun love talking this with was you fun yes thank you dr striker and as always, I am Peyton. I'm your host. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. And you can also now find us on Instagram at Joe's Boys Pod. We're having a lot of fun there, analyzing Amy's capelets. No mention of the capelets in this chapter. I guess that was a Greta Gerwig innovation, but you can find us over there. All right. Thank you so much. Tune in next episode. It's going to be lovely. Mm -hmm.